0: I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're exploring China's role in the global climate change agenda. On September 22nd, Chinese President Xi Jinping delivered a speech at the United Nations General Assembly in which he pledged that China's CO2 emissions would peak before 2030 and that China would become carbon neutral by 2060. China's investing heavily in new renewable energy and technologies in an effort to reduce its emissions footprint. Things like electric vehicles and solar power and wind power. But at the same time, China's contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions has increased as a result of its priority on rapid economic growth over the past few decades. China's track record in fighting global warming is this uneven, some good, some bad, and some quite ugly. So China will have to deliver if global climate change efforts are to succeed going forward. To discuss Xi Jinping's UN speech and China's domestic and international efforts to combat climate change... I'm joined by David Sandalow. David is the inaugural fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy and co-director of the Energy and Environment Concentration at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. He also founded and directs the Center's U.S.-China program. Thanks for joining us today, David. Thanks for having me, buddy. So how do you evaluate Xi Jinping's speech and China's new commitments at the UN? How significant is this? And why is China making these commitments now? And of course, do you think that Beijing's going to deliver on these promises in the years ahead?
1: Well, there's a lot in those questions. Let me start by saying I think the 2060 announcement is very important, and I'll explain why. The announcement for 2030 is maybe less significant. Before we get into the specific announcements that President Xi made this week, it might be worth just providing some context for your listeners who might not be familiar with climate change as an issue. China is the world's largest emitter of heat-trapping gases by far. Last year, Chinese emissions exceeded those from the United States, Europe, and Japan combined. They were about 27% of the global total. So there is no solution to climate change without China. With respect to the announcements at the United Nations or speaking to the United Nations, President Xi announced that that China would achieve carbon neutrality by twenty sixty. Now, carbon neutrality means that any carbon dioxide that it, which is the main heat trapping gas, that any carbon dioxide that's emitted, will be balanced by withdrawals from the atmosphere. That is a very big change in the energy system for China. So, I think I think it's an important announcement for a number of reasons. And the first is that it implies dramatic changes in the way the Chinese economy is structured. Today, 85% of the power uh, and energy in China comes from fossil fuels, from coal, oil, and gas, all of which emit carbon dioxide. Uh, In order to hit this target, that needs to almost completely go away, and those power sources need to be replaced with renewable power, such as solar, wind, and hydro, or nuclear power. So it's, it's an enormous transition that President Xi is committing the country to. A second factor that I think is relevant for many listeners in the West is that long-term goals are part of China's political culture in a way that's very unfamiliar to some of us in the West, I think. You know, Chinese government already has a 2049 goal that you'll be familiar with. It's called one of the centenary goals. It includes the aspiration to be prosperous middle-class society by 2049. Chinese government is currently developing its 14th five-year plan. The Chinese government has a capacity for long-term planning that significantly exceeds that of most governments. In Washington, D.C., when we pass a one-year appropriations bill, it's considered so significant that it gets headlines, right? In China, it's a very different story when it comes to long-term planning. In addition, I'd highlight the fact that this announcement was made by President Xi. Chinese government is quite a structured bureaucracy. Announcements are not made from the very top unless it reflects a very deliberate process of consideration about the implications for those decisions. As a result of the fact that, one, China has a capacity for long-term planning, and two, this this decision was announced by President Xi, I think it will shape decision-making in Chinese government circles for years to come on a variety of topics, from policy issues, you know, big policy issues, like what are the goals under five-year plans, to individual and discrete investment decisions. Now, anybody making those decisions will need to consider the implications for hitting this carbon neutrality goal by 2060, and that's a big change. That doesn't mean that carbon neutrality goal will always be the most important factor at some point. Short-term GDP factors might predominate, but this carbon neutrality goal will at least have a seat at the table. So a final factor I point to why I think is significant is that it sends a signal to the world that I think will be heard in many capitals around the world. China's largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. This will provide some combination of inspiration and pressure in capitals around the world for other governments to do the same thing. So For all those reasons, I'd say the 2060 goal of achieving carbon neutrality is quite important. The 2030 goal that was announced is essentially recycling what was already announced in 2014. There's some slightly different wording, but it's not materially different. And I think most experts believe that China can peak its emissions well before 2030. So that alone was not very significant.
0: So what should we look for then in the 14th five-year plan that you mentioned? What are the steps that China might take to demonstrate that it is serious about moving toward carbon neutrality?
1: I think it's a really important question you just asked because I think the 2060 goal of achieving carbon neutrality is only going to be deemed to be important by the world if the Chinese government takes short-term measures to reduce emissions. So on its own, without steps to implement it, it will be held, could be suspect? And of course, there's, you know, the famous thing by Lao Tzu that the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, and it couldn't be more appropriate than right here. So in the 14 five-year plan, there are going to be a number of critical decisions about policy energy structure. The one that I think is probably going to get the most attention is the capacity for limit for coal-fired power plants. Um, right now, the capacity limit in the 13 five-year plan has been 1,100 gigawatts. It is not realistic to expect China to hit this goal or or its energy transition if it keeps on building new coal-fired power plants. So I think the world will be looking to uh, determine kind of a measure of seriousness, whether the Chinese government puts the brakes on the construction of new coal-fired power plants. In addition, I think targets with respect to renewable energy will be very important. And then steps to integrate renewable energy into the electric grid to make it more feasible to use renewable energy in a number of different settings will be very important.
0: So, of course, you mentioned that China had previously pledged that it was going to peak in its CO2 emissions. So can you briefly talk about what progress China has made since it signed the Paris Agreement?
1: You know, it's been a study in contrast, I'd say. China is, on the one hand, it's the world's largest, um, the world's largest emitter, as I've already said. It's also consumes more coal than the rest of the world combined every year but at the same time, it's the world's largest deployer of renewable energy. It uh, has led the world in solar power deployment and wind power deployment and hydropower deployment, in nuclear power deployment for each of the past uh, five years or more. And since the Paris Agreement was signed uh, for a couple of years, China's emissions actually held steady or even dropped. They have started to tick up again in the past couple of years. But the 14 Five-Year Plan, and which is a process that's underway right now is going to be really critical in determining the next steps in meeting Paris Agreement objectives.
0: In the uh, issue paper that you wrote for the Asia Society Policy Institute, one of the statistics that you cited was really interesting to me. In 2018, China was responsible for 42% of new renewable power added globally. And then in 2019, that fell to 36%. And you noted that that has been the lowest figure in several years. So so how do you explain this? And is this a function of policies in China or is this a result of other countries contributing more renewable power?
1: I think that particular change is a little bit of both. Some changes in renewables policies in China and some greater development of uh, solar elsewhere in the world. I don't think that is a significant move away from solar power in China. In fact, to the contrary, I think there's a lot of momentum behind the development of solar power in China. There's some changes that have been made within the Chinese system as the price of solar power has fallen, and it's fallen dramatically in the recent years. There's been a move to kind of have solar stand on its own without subsidies, and that caused a little bit of a reduction. But I think the push for solar power in, in China is, in many respects, still very strong.
0: Many people who are analyzing uh, the Belt and Road Initiative have focused on how China is funding many projects and building, as part of those projects, more uh, coal-fired plants. And so even if China is making progress at home, do we have to be concerned about what it's doing internationally? Is there a potential for it setting one set of standards for itself and then increasing carbon emissions in the rest of the world?
1: We absolutely do need to be concerned about that. The energy projects that are being developed under the Belt and Road are a hugely important factor when it comes to climate change. And I'll start by saying that under the Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese government has developed some guidance that's called the Guidance to a Green Belt and Road, and it's developed by four Chinese ministries. And it's a very green document. The first time I read it, I Reread it and thought, boy, this looks like it was written by Greenpeace. I mean, it would be very familiar to kind of environmental advocates in the West. And at the second Belt and Road Forum, which was held last year in Beijing, there were a number of really positive steps announced to help protect the environment, to promote energy efficiency, to help fight global warming. That's the good part. At the same time, the overwhelming majority of the projects that are developed in the energy sector under the Belt and Road have been coal-fired power plants. And that is not consistent with meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement. China is at this time one of only three governments in the world that provides public money for the financing of coal-fired power plants abroad. The others are Japan and Korea, South Korea. And the Japanese government is in a debate right now about phasing this out completely. And China is overwhelmingly the most important government when it comes to this. So the continued financing of coal-fired power plants under the Belt and Road Initiative is a huge issue when it comes to meeting our climate change goals. And I think this is going to be an issue that's going to get a lot of attention globally in the years ahead.
0: I know that this has occurred in many cities around the world that as a result of COVID-19 and the lockdowns, there was a drop in air pollution. We certainly saw this in Chinese uh, cities. And I understand that there has been some evidence that there's Actually, not that much uh, CO2 emissions that really come from cars. And so, even if we deal with this problem, it's not going to be enough to deal with the global warming issue. So, I'm curious about how China assesses the issue of air pollution. This is the probably biggest element of the global warming problem in terms of public opinion in China. Is this something that they're more concerned about than other issues relating to CO2 because it does have an impact on public opinion? And if so, are they continuing to do something about it? The resumption of pretty much normal life in China, I assume, has led to the reintroduction of air pollution. So urban
1: air pollution and climate change are related problems. They're not entirely identical. Urban air pollution is caused by a certain set of pollutants and climate change is caused by others with some overlap. Most of the measures that you can take to fight urban air pollution also help you fight global warming. So there's a lot of overlap there. You know, as you well know, anyone who's traveled to China knows air pollution is a very serious issue in China. The air quality has gotten better in the past decade in China, or really since 2013. In 2013, there was a horrible month or two in the winter, which is known as the airpocalypse got enormous attention. It was kind of roughly coincident with President Xi Jinping's ascension. He promised to make China's skies blue again. You look at the data, there has been some real progress in reducing some of the worst local air pollutants um, in China. That remains a priority of the Chinese government to continue to improve air quality. And I'm sure we'll see more of that in the 14th Five-Year Plan. And as I said, most of the measures you take there are good for fighting climate change as well. You asked about COVID nineteen. It was very interesting to watch what happened in the first quarter of twenty twenty as a result of COVID nineteen during the lockdowns. It when of course, you know, unprecedented changes in, in kind of activity in China with cars off the road and in almost all places. And what we saw was significant drop in some pollutants, particular particularly, you know, nitrous oxides and volatile organics that come from auto emissions, but not from some others, including particulate matter that come from factories and power plants. And that's because although cars were off the road, the uh, industry kept on operating and power plants kept on operating during that period. It's not easy or even possible to just turn off a steel plant and turn it back on. So those enormous industrial centers in the JJJ area around Beijing continue to operate and that led to significant air pollution loads in that area and in other parts of northern China. So, quite a case study in the nature of these emissions in China, with some dropping dramatically, but others not dropping at all. And indeed, there was a lot of commentary during February of 2020 in Beijing, um, when which was a kind of peak lockdown period. When there a couple of weeks during February was terrible air quality in Beijing, even though the city was under lockdown. As cars have come back, and we're recording right now in uh, September 2020. Much of China is back to normal or close to back to normal in terms of cars on the road and traffic, and and so air pollution levels are, you know, back to where they were.
0: One of the issues I wanted to ask you about is whether you think that China's political system and the structure of its government are advantageous to achieving what it needs to achieve in order to fulfill this promise by 2060. If we look at some past instances in China, sometimes the center speaks and the local governments don't always comply. Probably a little bit harder under Xi Jinping's rule, but we saw this quite a bit under Hu Jintao. So just trying to have advantages essentially or disadvantages when it comes to putting in place what they will need to do in order to enforce compliance and to reduce CO2 emissions.
1: It's a really good question, Bonnie. I think the Chinese system has both strengths and weaknesses when it comes to implementing changes like this. And One of the strengths I already spoke about, which is the capacity for long-term planning, and that's maybe one of the most important strengths. And fighting climate change involves long-term transition. I mean, We need action in the short term, but it involves changes over the long term. And the Chinese government's capacity for long-term planning is very important when it comes to that. On the other hand, there are disadvantages. One of them you just pointed to, you know, there's the old saying that the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. And for sure, there are policies announced from Beijing that are not implemented enthusiastically by provincial officials. Provincialism in certain capitals can be a challenge. Another issue actually is the enforcement culture in China. There's, although this is changing, I think there's, there's been a tolerance for not observing rules and regulations that would not be familiar in the United States. I, I've heard it said that it's kind of interesting contrast. In the United States, it is very, very difficult to pass a law. But once we pass a law, we have some pretty serious measures for making sure that it's enforced. And I mean, the Chinese system is a bit of the opposite. It's, it can be easier to pass a law, but just because a law in the books doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be followed. To say it's advisory is a little bit of an overstatement, but it's one of a number of factors that gets considered
0: in the implementation of Chinese policy. One of the areas that I think is going to be essential in China's plans to reduce emissions is going to be its development of technology. And we've seen this already in electric vehicles where China has been leading. And of course, the West is now putting more and more pressure on China in the area of certain technology and may hamper the development of some innovation in China going forward. And that this will be to some extent like an obstacle or something that will hamper China from really moving forward forward on this front because it will may, may struggle to develop the technologies that are needed in order to reduce emissions.
1: You know, I've seen tremendous development of innovative capacities within China in recent years. I think that the Chinese interest in electric vehicles is in part driven by a desire to develop innovative capacity in automobile manufacturing. There's been serious attention to developing that type of capability for many years, so I think while China lags in some areas. I think it's catching up and even, you know, in in areas including artificial intelligence and some of the technology areas, surpassing places in the West in terms of innovation capacity.
0: During the last almost four years now of the Trump administration, The United States and China in this area of global warming and cooperation, collaboration on addressing climate change has really atrophied. Of course, there are other areas in which cooperation is atrophied as well. And this might return in a Biden administration if Joe Biden is elected. I think the Democrats are quite keen to put the issue of climate change on the agenda. But of course, if Trump is reelected, I think we can expect that that there will be further deterioration on this issue and perhaps others. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about whether there is any ongoing collaboration, if it's not between governments, is there collaboration between scientists and universities that still goes on? And what are the specific areas where we should be strengthening collaboration if we have the opportunity to resume?
1: So, there has been continued dialogue. There's, for example, a dialogue between the California state government and Chinese authorities on climate and clean energy issues and expert dialogues, you know, track two dialogues um, on these topics. But there's no question that the uh, deterioration relations between the United States have very serious consequences on on working on these issues. And I think it's going to continue to have a very serious implication for that. And I think If there's a Biden administration, there will be a 180-degree change in the U.S. climate change policy at the federal level. Joe Biden has been very clear that he believes climate change to be, She named it as one of the four crises that the country needs to address in his convention acceptance speech. There will not be a 180-degree change in U.S.-China policy. Vice President Biden has also made clear that although he disagrees with the erratic nature of the Trump administration's China policy, that he doesn't share the priority that the Trump administration has given to to trade deficit reduction and for specific commodities. Many of the concerns that lie behind some of the Trump administration's China policies are shared on a broad bipartisan basis, including by, by Vice President Biden. So I think the China relationship will remain complicated and difficult no matter who prevails in the November election. I do think that if Vice President Biden becomes president, that there will be a desire on the part of both countries to work together on climate change. The Biden administration considers this to be a hugely important issue and there's no solution to climate change without China. And the Chinese government clearly believes it to be an issue that needs to be addressed as well. There are no known climate deniers in the Chinese government and none with any observable influence in policy. So, so I think there'd be a desire to work together. I think it'd be very difficult there are forces of nationalism in both governments that will make it very challenging to actually work together on any issue. And there'll be deep disagreements on a number of issues. I mean, the Biden administration, I think, will have respect to human rights issues, for example, in many ways, you know, stronger policy than the Trump administration. So, and that will lead to potential antagonism in the relationship. So I think there will be challenges, but I think both governments will try to figure out a way to work together. I guess is it'll take some confidence building to make that happen. But I think at least there'll be desire to work together. But back in 2014, the announcement by the U.S. and Chinese leaders of an agreement on climate change was foundational with respect to the rest of the world coming together to take on this problem. And I think that's a model that's still in the minds of many people who pay attention to climate diplomacy. I think it'll be hard to replicate that directly, but in some form, I think the two countries will work to try to come together.
0: The last thing I'd like to ask is just maybe to circle back to where we started, which we didn't quite get at the why now question. And I think that, at least to me, this is an opportunity for China to present itself as a global leader. China has stated, and Xi Jinping in particular has stated, that China should lead global governance reform and China's trying to put itself forward as a leader in the world and in contrast, frankly, to the United States. I don't think that China is going to be able to do that in the global health area due to what happened at the outset of the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan. So I think that the Chinese are going to have to find other areas where they can present China as a leading force in the world. So is this going to be, is climate change going to be the issue that's going to make China as the global leader, maybe even uh, seen as uh, the country that will, you know, set the agenda in the future and replace how the United States has been seen for so long as the leader of the world?
1: There's a narrow answer to your question within the context of the climate negotiations the multilateral climate change process, under the Paris Agreement, which was adopted in 2015, all governments are encouraged to submit long-term greenhouse gas emission reduction strategies by the end of 2020. And so as part of that process, the Chinese government was developing plans to comply with that kind of element of the Paris Agreement process. By no means it was a requirement that the head of state announce such a policy or that it be given such prominence. But the Paris Agreement encourages governments to do exactly what President Xi Jinping just did. So that's a narrow answer. Your broader answer, I think, in terms of the context of Chinese position in the world overall, is very astute. And I think that uh, the Chinese government sees an enormous opportunity created by the Trump administration's abdication of global leadership, In the past couple of years and is filling that in a number of different ways. And the climate change agenda offers an opportunity to do that. And I think that's part of what we were observing in the speech by President Xi Jinping.
0: Well, thank you so much for helping us to understand the momentous announcement by Xi Jinping. And uh, we will look forward to keeping in touch and assessing China's performance as we go forward. We've been talking to David Sandalow, who's at the Center on Global Energy Policy and co-director of the Energy and Environment Concentration at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Thanks again, David.
1: Thank you, Bonnie.